Welcome to the eighth episode of Unframed. I'm your host, Anthea Pockroy. Today's episode is really inspiring if you're an artist. We speak to Bronwyn Lace, the artist who is showing at Everard Reed Gallery at the moment in a show called Mirror Mirror. It comes down on the 6th of October, so just enough time to go see it. We speak about the show and how it is to work with the gallery. We also talk about the various roles Bronwyn plays in her life, including her latest as the animateur at the Center for the Less Good Idea. She talks about her interest in working in a community and being involved in the bigger picture, as well as the incredible value of forming relationships within the industry. Enjoy listening to my conversation with artist Bronwyn Lace. Hi Bronwyn, thanks so much for joining me. I'm very excited to chat to you today. We met when I was in fourth year at WITS, hmm. so that must have been 2007. Um, and I remember you, you were like one of the first art world people, like really official art world people that I ever met and um, I'm just amazed at how much you've achieved and done over the last 11 years since I've known you and probably more so before that and I'm excited to explore all the different facets of Bronwyn Lace today with you. Hi, thanks. So just to begin, uh, if you can tell our listeners from your perspective, who is Bronwyn Lace? I am an artist and I think primarily a visual artist. A lot of the time I'm referred to as a sort of installation artist who has a kind of performativity in the installation. Sometimes it involves my body or another person's body, uh, but sometimes it's a sort of an installation that references the body and the making, the body used as a tool to make work. But yeah, I think essentially I'm an artist. So we are sitting in... Everard Reed Gallery in Johannesburg at your show, which opened on the 23rd of August and is running until the 6th of October. We yes. just looked it up. <laughs> it's called Mirror Mirror. And this is, uh, you've had a few shows with this gallery, which I'll ask you about in a moment. But if you could just tell me a little bit briefly about this show. Great. Uh, Mirror Mirror is an exhibition for the first time using the Everard Reed space versus the circus space where I've worked before. And it is a collection of works that really display the last uh, 10 years of both kind of methodologies of making, uh, the type of uh, materials and processes that I've been investigating now for, for over a decade, um, from sort of intensive things like origami folding, uh, stitching into paper and x-rays, casting of sort of very fine wishbones um, to some of the more spontaneous and chance type processes that I'm interested in, like creating raw shush ink blot works that can only be done in a kind of moment. So it is a range of works and very much a continual thread of a kind of meditation and investigation through art into visual relationships between art, religion, physics, philosophy, but essentially around death, not for its morbid sort of fascinations, but more because it's this inevitable thing and uh, loss and death have a kind of a beauty. When we mourn, it's because we loved and because we lived. Um, and I think that this show is about looking at the kind of binaries that exist uh, and seeking a balance um, in, in an aesthetic sort of conversation. Mm. You spoke about the looking back of the last 10 years of methodology. Do you see this as a kind of like mini retrospective? 
It is a kind of review of sorts, which is why I chose not to work in the Circa Gallery and rather in the Everard Reed space, because um, Circa demands a kind of response and an installation as a building. Mm. And I've responded to it a number of times in different ways. And in this case, these works exist outside of a kind of site-specific response, which is, it's much more of uh, my studio practice. And, you know, I, I'm often referred to as an installation artist because so much of my work has been site-specific and responsive and public and, mm. and those sorts of things. And in this instance, these are really the kind of meditations that take place in my studio. Some of these works have been in construction and with me for seven, eight years and are finally kind of finding a, a more resolved version of themselves in this show. There's something about those uh, little sculptures in the top chamber that seem like little maquettes for your larger installations, the fish gut with the, you know, so it, were you trying to kind of contain the objects yeah. from installation into smaller art objects? Yeah, so they're actually called studies and they're, they're uh, some of them I did well before I did some of my larger uh, fishing line installations that are now kind of on permanent, mm. um, you know, that are commissions in permanent buildings and they were studies. It was a kind of investment investigation of what this material does when pulled across uh, surfaces uh, and it's it's showing that sort of maquette kind of thinking uh, yeah. sketch thinking towards larger things I'm interested in the relationship for you between large installations and artworks that are more kind of consumable in a sense that artworks that can sell artworks that have a frame and um, can hang on a wall or sit on a plinth. How do you negotiate those two types of working? That has come up very much out of the relationship with the gallery. Uh, I met Everard Reed um, Gallery and Mark Reed and Gina Mollet in 2011 when Ricky Burnett curated me amongst 60 other artists onto the horse exhibition. Mm, I, I think that. it's multiple views of a singular beast. Um, and in that instance, uh, it was my first real kind of venture into a gallery world. Um, and for the show, I suspended uh, a horse skeleton, but articulated it to look like a kind of a flying mythical beast or a swimming uh, sort of a prehistoric thing. Um, and, and so really extracted it from its um, structure as a horse. Mark was, was very interested in that work and it was directly from that work that he invited me to have my first solo in 2012. Uh, and that solo I also built a large sort of installation for, which is much more difficult to sort of sell or to walk away with. Ironically, it actually has resulted in some really nice large commissions, but as has the horse installation. But at the same time, it pushed me into what felt like a dilemma, in fact, at the time, um, and a bit of a crisis into how do I make these things objects? How do I sort of respond for the first time as an artist to the, the kind of economic world within the art world, uh, yeah. within a gallery space. So I began uh, in 2012 with a tendency towards complexity, which you photographed, to transfer some of my thinking into the object. And subsequently, uh, in the last six years, I've really enjoyed that um, and found an incredible balance. And I've rediscovered some of my kind of art school training in terms of bronze casting and printmaking and those things that by the end of my degree I had sort of tossed. So yeah, I think this show is is very much about 
both of those worlds. I remember a nice example of an interesting example. You had, I think it was a 2012 show. It might have been later, but you had a very low light box with the threads in. And I remember either you asked or the person who bought it turned it into a coffee table. Yes. And I think that was, it's a really nice way of thinking about how art can become functional. Yeah, absolutely. It was, I definitely didn't have a coffee table in mind when I was making the work. But in fact, it came out of um, collapsing my installations. So this kind of site-specific responsive building an installation through using fishing line almost as, as your pencil in space was, was what I was pursuing and very interested in uh, but then came the problem at the end of the show where you know you don't own these spaces and therefore the work only has a finite life that that became a, a metaphor really for what I was in fact talking about which is this kind of this life that we're in right now it's difficult to imagine the world without us in it but it's also inevitable and it is it is the kind of it is the only truth so the work is almost this body that has this one life, but the material still exists in the same way that our own biological material will, in one way or form, still exist post our death mm. um, and gets transformed. So the collapse became interesting because it's also, it's the thing that challenges me so much. My instinct is is, is not chaos, it's order. Um, and I find comfort in the, in the very organized and the very structured. When I collapse it, however, something is sort of ignited that is both mysterious and um, very enticing to me. And so the collapse were, you know, I've, I've got two surfaces that I, I use in a very practical way to pull the line between two sort of um, spaces. And when I collapse them, I can't control what the line does. But then to find solutions that contain the collapse meant to build these sorts of light boxes. And uh, naturally, as soon as I'd built them, people said, oh, this is, this is, I want this, but I'm, you know, I'm going to use it as a table in my lounge. Uh, and so, I mean, there's, there are now a number of, of works within the Collapse series that people own and that sit as kind of um, coffee tables in their homes. And mm. um, the very practical application of something that is so deeply uh, ephemeral and philosophical uh, for me is, is fabulous. Yeah. What attracts you to working with the materials you use, uh, fish gut, bones, origami? Um, there's a kind of a foundness about them. They have a memory. Um, certainly bones, uh, the paper that I use to fold the origami is always the same. It's from the same set of Encyclopedia Britannica bought by my parents when my mum was pregnant with, with me wow. and starting a kind of family and really with an objective to to educate and deepen knowledge through that medium, but also that it's a kind of redundant and dead medium now. Um, you know, the information is not only outdated, the kind of the encyclopedia uh, is no longer printed by Britannica, for example, because it's all online. So the, it's, it's the sort of death of that media that attracts me in that instance. The bone, the use of the bone is fascinating because uh, it is also this material that once held life most of the bones, both in relation to one another, but also just extracted a piece of a vertebra, a pelvis, a sternum, a wishbone, you know, the furcula of a bird, have a sculptural elegance that is mm. exceptional. There's, as a sculptor, you can't hope to replicate the, both the kind of, um, 
practical utility of the bone, but also uh, just a beautiful curve and a beautiful, like function and form come together so perfectly. And I'm always drawn to it and always amazed by it. You spoke a bit about your beginning of your relationship with Everard Reed. Many artists, you know, dream of being represented by, by one of the top galleries in the country. What is it like working with a gallery like this? It's a very important aspect to what any artist does. At the end of the day, the gallery provides a space and a platform, and that's what we need, and it provides an audience. Mm. There are curators within the spaces that also start to know your work intimately, and they know your your trajectory and your process, and those things are essential because you need mirrors as an artist. You need people who can reflect um, alongside you, who can stand both outside of you uh, and witness what you're doing, but have the the necessary history um, to drive that. Those relationships are, of course, essential. They're not the end of the road, though, and they're not the golden ticket. And um, as an artist, you have to continue to work very hard to understand your practice outside of the system, the gallery system, and within it. Yeah, and you do a lot of residency, so I imagine that that's provides an alternative space to yes. your practice. Yeah. Residencies are incredible kind of catalyzers of new work um, to put yourself particularly into a foreign context and then demand that you respond to that context means that there's a sort of a push. So the residencies um, and traveling really uh, have been essential to me. Yeah. Mm. You really have traversed many roles in the art industry over the years alongside being an artist. You worked at the Bag Factory. That's where I first met you in 2007. You've been assistant curator for the SABC collection. You have curated and project managed a variety of projects, including the Sutherland Reflections. Mm. And now, most recently, you're the director for the Center for the Less Good Idea. It is a very common thing for artists to wear many hats. Can you tell me a little bit more about how this is for you? And is this a desire or is it a an imperative to do so many things and have so many skills. Do you think all artists kind of need to be doing many things in order to survive or to create? Yeah, I think that the context demands it. If you, you know, both eking out a kind of living, uh, particularly when you're starting out, and also networking yourself into a much more complex kind of understanding of uh, how these these various systems within the art world function mean that you need to have a kind of multiplicity within your career. Um, there are very few people who can afford to just focus on making and having a studio practice, uh, and it really is a thing that gets afforded. You know, to it is that's the height I think of a kind of privilege that people have. For me, I swing, in my opinion, with these things. There's moments where I'm deeply frustrated at not having enough time in studio and enough time to think through something, enough time to sit and read my research to generate new kind of work and, and thoughts because I have other roles and obligations. I've reached an incredible point in the last two years where I'm embedded into a system which feels like a kind of dream come true. Um, the role of the sort of animateur for the Center for the Less Good Idea is one that brings my interest in performance, my love of theater and 
text, my fascination in with music and dance all together. And I'm surrounded by individuals who are open to the ensemble and collaboration and working in an interdisciplinary way. And so I'm really very excited to be in that space. And I notice how it feeds me as much as my studio does. And they're not obvious kind of links and relations and influences between my studio practice and my role as the animateur for the center. But I know that I'm equally stimulated by both and mm. that my mind is is being challenged uh, and and therefore is responding and growing and developing. Some of the things that I've done have been absolutely necessary from a from a financial perspective. Um however, I always ensured that I chased and chose roles that kept me close to art um and other artists. And I and I recognize that I'm also able to do these things because I have a bit of a rare uh, aspect to me, which is that I'm an artist, but I'm also organized and yeah. uh, communicative. And I like to communicate. I like to interpret. I like to be in the bigger picture um, versus in the singular and in my studio practice. In fact, even in my studio practice for a while after my time at the bag factory, I went into a kind of space where I thought, you know, took my own smaller studio, isolated space in a building that wasn't an arts building. And for two years, I had this kind of thing of, you know, I was going to be this sort of very serious head down studio practice eight hours a day. Uh, and I slipped into a kind of a very uh, problematic relationship with my work. And so my I realized I need people around me. I'm gre gregarious by nature. And so I then took a much larger 500 square meter space and invited artists to join me and kind of created a, yes. So it was initially at the Aerial Empire space in, in oh, Mabuneng, yes. but very quickly yeah. into August House. And August House now has 60 artists and it's incredibly enriching to be in an environment where other artists are. And I do find that I end up organizing people because as my daughter likes to say, I'm a bit of a bossy pants <laughs> and um, it comes naturally to me. Uh, it won't to everyone. Uh, I see others who are in, in a very singular practice and doing just as well. Uh, I think the answer is to know what, what fulfills you. Yeah. Something that struck me when I was walking through your exhibition and in relation to this is the kind of relationships and contacts and friendships you've probably formed through all these various roles at the bag factory. I, I saw Kula Kinisteris has mm. written a lot of beautiful text on the walls of your mm. show. Mm. And um, I know that you worked with her at the bag factory. She was the director and then she's the curator of the SABC and you worked with her there. So it's apparent you've obviously developed a really amazing relationship and friendship with her to the point that now later in your career, she's contributing yeah. so beneficially. Yeah. So I, I really see this branching out into all many different facets of the industry so beneficial in so many different ways yeah yeah absolutely it's you know I married an artist yes. um, <laughs> we have collaborated we created the Sutherland Reflections project which was eight years of research and public development together we kind of do live sleep eat breathe uh, a lot of the time art I mean it's it's the thing that we fall asleep to in discussion and often the thing that we the, we wake up talking about uh, we have to actually deliberately build in time we've noticed now kind of 11 years into our relationship non-art non-art time our child helps immensely with that and kind of diversifies it and the relationship with like the one I have with Kula is seminal 
you know, she feels like a, a sister. We met one another 12 or 13 years ago at the bag factory, as you say. But she responded to my work and to me. And she loves fiercely and she has that kind of immense capacity to be a person in your life who um, affirms, but also brings a very necessary reflection and critique. And she has watched me making, is often in my studio. Uh, in fact, my relationship with Kula extends to a, a relationship with her husband, Niels, who was a sculptor, Niels Kutsia. And um, post his death, uh, we created a, a show. Mm. Kula compiled his work and created, created Crucible as a reflection yes, on his body of work. And then I responded to it in a show called Response. Niels's thinking and writing and research has also influenced mine in terms of a kind of looking at beauty, ugliness, death, life, chaos, order dark light and and Kula brings incredible words to it she's she's a poet she's a greek tragedy she's a she's gorgeous and i think that she has become a kind of a mirror to me she watches me making and reminds me of stuff i was doing a decade ago that i've forgotten about but is in fact the same impulse just deepened and made um stronger those relationships are they're not a network they're a family literally. And I think that that is actually what's so magnificent about what we do is, is that we, we have other humans around us. Yeah. I think if we think back to your role as animateur, mm. did I say it right? Mm. What does it mean? So it is the French word for animator. And okay. essentially, um, the reason uh, we use the French word is because in a kind of uh, French theater art puppetry tradition, it's, it's more than an animator. It's this person who's responsible for a kind of catalyzing of energy, for carrying momentum across spaces and times. We're not interested in a kind of director role because this is a space that embodies process and and collaboration and a kind of the less good idea not being a bad idea but a secondary idea and recognizing you know every time I speak about it with an artist there's a kind of flicker of light in the eye because uh, we know there are these good ideas these moments that we this rush of endorphin that hits you at three in the morning and wakes you up yes, because an I idea has come and you are then desperate to chase it and as soon as you begin to chase it, it starts to collapse in places uh, and other stuff rises. There's this peripheral recognition of in the idea meeting the real world, the unanticipated, the stuff that you never knew you always knew. There are very little spaces in the world, both South Africa or globally, that are for art the platforms, the festivals, the theatres, the galleries that give us the opportunity from a resource perspective, from a time perspective, to chase the peripheral. We kind of have to write these proposals so much of the time and then we have to meet them in reports. We see these things as distractions, these peripheral things that emerge as distractions towards the goal rather than the thing. Yeah. And so I recognize that in my own practice. William began to speak to me about that when he decided that he had the desire and capacity to create a kind of foundation as William Kentridge, but also recognizing that he has been afforded something that so many artists desire, which is opportunities to play, opportunities to collaborate, opportunities to take risks. And so when he spoke to me about this and we began to conceive of the center for the less good idea, it resonated so strongly in me 
And so I, you know, we decided I wasn't any kind of director because a director doesn't make sense for that process. But an animateur who holds and who encourages and who deliberately breaks the habitual process of, of meeting the deadline versus being stuck in the problem. If we continue from your, the discussion around the relationship with Kula, this mentor figure, uh, how would you describe your relationship with William? How is it to work with the William Kentridge, this inspiring, talented, proactive man? God, it's a constant education in the most exceptional way. He is a natural mentor. He doesn't realize how everything that he does explodes the mind. He sees an enormous picture that he's able to puzzle together simultaneous to the most intricate detail. I've also never worked with somebody who's so generous, not just, of course, with, with the resources. You know, William funds the Center for the Less Good Idea. He's resourced it, but he gives of his time. We've just come through this week and weekend, a five-day intensive workshopping process for the development of season four. William is there as long as anybody else, despite the fact that there are exhibitions and performances and operas and installations of his traveling all over the world. And at the same time, he's generating his own new work and meeting an unbelievable demand. He has capacity like no other to really respond to what other artists are doing and to feed with inspiration and ideas. How did you get involved with it initially? I know that you were there from the beginning since it yeah. started in 2016. What? How did you get connected to him? It was a conversation. I bumped into William at an event and he asked me if I would come and see him in his studio that week. And I felt like I was being called into the principal's office. <laughs> um, I didn't know William very well. I mean, I had interviewed him for the book that Marcus and I were involved in uh, for the Sutherland Project, this My Room at the Center of the Universe. And we were interested in, in one of his works that was featured there and so I'd interviewed him in that context and it was a very uh, wonderful kind of experience to be filming and, and interviewing him like you are me now uh, in his his studio and I remember being very excited about that and but then years later in early 2016 January when we bumped into each other he said come and see me and he expressed this desire and he asked me if I'd be interested in working on it and it just went from there it's actually a bit of a mystery to me why I was asked or what his thought patterns were. I actually haven't asked him why he spoke to me. I just realized that this was exceptional and I felt incredibly privileged and I jumped on the wagon. <laughs> I always perceived you as this person that just got stuff done. You just made stuff happen Yeah. in, in so many ways. So I'm sure that's yeah. part of the thinking. Yeah. You spoke earlier about you know, living and breathing art. And my question is about Maboneng. You were one of the first tenants there. I remember yeah. when it was first starting up, you you had an apartment there. And I, are you still there? Yeah, we still live there. And I know you and your husband, Marcus Neustetter, and uh, his partner, Stephen Hobbs, have done a lot of collaborations in the area with the property developers. What is your attachment to this place? And how does it influence your daily life? I mean, as a student, I already had a, an interest in the city. I, you know, straight after school, I left South Africa and uh, traveled in Europe for two years, worked as a nanny near Amsterdam and became cognizant of the fact that I had not lived in the city, in the urban centers of South Africa. Uh, and in fact, that there was this as a white suburban 
privileged kid growing up in apartheid, I lived behind walls and that the city was this terrifying spot we, you know, were not to go to. Uh, and then experiencing kind of European cities and the dynamics of a sort of urban center, coming back and deciding to do my art degree, but also realizing that I wanted to be part of our city and being introduced to it by artists like Joe Ratcliffe, um, who encouraged us to walk and to photograph and to really understand what life in the city was like. So from that first year of fine art education, I was hooked. And by the third year, I was kind of half staying with um, my boyfriend at the time who lived opposite August House uh, with B. Fenter, um, and who was the initiator of August House as an art studio space. And I was, you know, uh, mingling with the Jabir Park Project uh, initiators like Joseph Gaylard and Dorothy Kreutzfeldt. And so just that is that is essentially something of the Johannesburg art world that, you know, we are people who love our city and its grittiness and its complexities. So from that time, I'd, I'd been living in and around from Durenfontein to Bramfontein. In 2010, um, Marcus and I were still living in Bramfontein. We were on a residency in New York and became aware of opportunities to buy near Maboneng when the first residential building was being made. We leapt onto that. And, you know, the Trinity Session is, of course, a space that has activated the city through public art for the last 17, 18 years. Yeah. Um, so this, that's very much Marcus's project. It's still our home. I'm a member of the Maboneng Civic Association, which was recently formed at the beginning of this year, which is basically community members who are working very hard together to make that space a space a clean and safe space, but a space that is also very much aware of its and sensitive to mm -hmm. its relationship to the rest of the city and to the people who live next to us who are not Mabonengers. Um, you know, that kind of branding of Maboneng is, is a kind of gentrified yeah. thing, but it's also in a South African complex context too complex to apply a kind of European understanding of what gentrification mm. is. Yeah, it, you know, it was a development project and it's become a community and it's a space that we love and hate simultaneously every day. It's living with people. There are noise issues and there are crime issues and there are things that are very frustrating uh, and at the same time things that are so exquisite it's hard to look away from them. The kind of richness of a multi-economy, multi-cultural, uh, racial space that is encouraging creatives to live and work in the same space. What has been the highlight of your career so far? Oh, th there's so many, there's so many things. You know, each time I, I do a new show, it's your baby and you love it uh, intensely and you don't know, you know, how you would move away from it. And then after a bit of time, it's it's just part of the kind of archive of what you've done. Being the animateur of the center and watching these seasons unfold and this exceptional work, it's mind blowing. It's It has a momentum of its own. I started out as a kind of needing to drive it and now I, I'm catching the train. And what is coming up next for you? I have a, a talk in Paris in November as the animateur at the Musée Cuibranli, which is an African art museum in Paris. And I'm very excited to be presenting the less good idea there and, and talking about process-based work uh, and what we're achieving in Johannesburg. Uh, next week, in fact, a uh, work of mine opens at uh, WUK, which is a museum in Vienna. So I'm traveling this weekend to Vienna. 
This show has just opened, but uh, I'm working on multiple commissions at the moment um, for both for private kind of spaces and some public spaces. Very cool. Last question that I'm just going to throw in there because I've been asking it to lots of people, so it would be nice to have the thread. What motivates you to keep doing what you're doing? The rush of endorphins when you find something new, uh, when you rediscover something that has more clarity than it did the previous time. The seminal belief that art is good for society and that without it, we run a risk of not challenging ourselves enough and myself enough. And a fear that I know and I've experienced a few times in my life that if I'm not making and I'm not in this, I reach a kind of an, an emptiness and a dislocation, a very sort of uncomfortable inversion that I run away from, essentially. Thank you, Bronwyn. Thanks, it's been a pleasure. Okay. Cool. Lovely to be here. Thanks. Bronwyn's show, Mirror Mirror, is on at the Everard Reed Gallery in Johannesburg until the 6th of October. The fourth season of the Center for the Less Good Idea runs from the 16th to the 21st of October, so be sure to book your tickets as soon as possible. Thank you so much for listening today, and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes Library at Unframed, and follow Unframed Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. See you next time. Bye. Bye.